So Revelation chapter 21, starting at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirits to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, And with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its walls and it was 144 cubits thick as man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire the third Chalcedony, the fourth Emerald, the fifth Sardonyx, the sixth Carnelian, the seventh Chrysalid, the eighth Beryl, the ninth Topaz, the tenth Chrysoprase, the eleventh Jacinth, and the twelfth Amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does not who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruits every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Obviously, we are now very much nearing the ends of the book of Revelation in a, in a series that's lasted some months now. Um, if you've been here through that time, you could cast your mind back to near the beginning of this series where we, we looked at the early chapters and saw there seven churches. Seven churches that were located in what is now modern day Turkey, what was then known as um, Asia Minor, and uh, Jesus shares a message with each of those seven churches. And what we see, some churches doing well, but still experiencing great pressure and persecution. Some churches losing their way. Some churches getting compromised. In one way or another, what we see, therefore, in, in those early chapters is the church in trouble. The church on the earth in trouble, a small church, a vulnerable church, a church in a hostile world, a world uh, and living in an, uh, in an empire that is hostile to the Christian faith. Life is tough for those seven churches that are experiencing suffering. Some are feeling weak. Some, yeah, many persevering but persecuted, uh, compromising others, losing their way. We, we heard things said that Jesus says, look, I, I know where you live. I know it's tough where you live. I know it's as if um, Satan has his throne in your hometown and people have been killed for their faith and other churches hearing it's, it's been tough and actually you're going to experience more persecution and suffering for, for, for 10 days. And I know actually on the earth... You're poor. You're experiencing difficulty and poverty. You can't do trade um, in the same way as other people because you're not willing to compromise yourself by going along uh, to pagan temples where business was done. And so you're poor, but in my sight, you're rich. Other churches thinking, yeah, we're rich. We've got everything we could possibly need. And Jesus comes along and says, no, you're, you're pitiful. You don't have anything. All you have is your pride and your self-sufficiency. And I want to show you a different way. Come to me. Come to me afresh. So we see the church in trouble. And Paul, uh, John sorry, was writing this letter. Jesus was bringing this revelation to John that John might share with those churches something that would encourage them in the situation they were facing. The, the future did not look rosy. The future look like one big fat problem uh, for many of these churches. And so we saw there were, there were seven in number 
And so we understand that because of that number, which often represents kind of fullness or perfection, we understand that this book of Revelation has relevance to God's whole church down through all the ages. The church in trouble. And we can know something of that ourselves. And at the point at which Paul... uh, Paul, what am I talking about? The point at which John was writing this letter, Jerusalem had already, a few years earlier, been completely uh, ransacked, conquered, razed to the ground, uh, the temple destroyed, utter disgrace. And um, the church could be thinking, well, that's where everything got started. That's where the very first disciples spent time with Jesus. That's, as it were, there's something of, of home about Jerusalem, but even that now has been absolutely um, demolished, more or less. So that the church is feeling small. The church is feeling vulnerable. The church might be feeling a little bit homeless or a little bit homesick. We, we don't quite feel like we belong in our hometown. Actually, you know, we look at even the old Jerusalem has gone. It feels like there's nowhere to call home. When John was writing, there was no nation or country that would be proposing to be a Christian nation, a Christian country, a Christian city. No, it was none of that. It was the church in trouble. And so it's easy for us, as it was easy for them, to fix our eyes on what we see. Now, what did they see? Well, they probably had loads of discouragements they could fix their eyes on. Problems, imperfection, sometimes pressure is coming from the outside to bear on a church and they're standing firm, but they're experiencing persecution and even some people being martyred. And other churches, under that weight of pressure, start to give way and start to compromise with the society around them, giving into pagan practices, sexual immorality and so the church's witness is just getting diluted and there's a church that needs to be kind of woken up from its slumber so imperfections some can see imperfections in the life of church today i think yeah well i i see the issues and uh, i'm i'm just going to opt out i'm going to jump ship i'm going to find another one or i'm just going to ditch church altogether and, and come up with a different way of being a Christian. Maybe it's, it's just going to be about kind of being online. Uh, I could just relate online with a few believers, or I could just be a Christian through God TV, or, 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 or relate in that way, or, or just be part of a, of a different group. The church, well, it's tricky. The church, you can see its imperfections. You can see the things that aren't working out perfectly. You can bet that in those seven churches, there were believers who had questions. There were believers thinking, we have decided to follow Jesus, but now what we've experienced leads us to the question, where is this all heading? Where is this all going? Is God really good, in other words? And that literal question might not be asked, but that can kind of flavor some of the issues that we might wrestle with, we, that can flavor some, some of the prayers that we might bring. I'm persevering, I'm still going, but is, is God still good? Is God still there? Is God still in control? Is God still with us? 
and questions or unanswered prayers, prayers that haven't been quite answered in the way that we were hoping or expecting, can lead to disappointment. And again, prayers, just getting a, a, a flavoring, just get seasoned with God, you've let us down. God, you've not quite delivered. And we know, we know you're good. We know that you're working out your, your, your great plans, but that's just how it feels. That's, that's our heart response to whatever might, we might be facing in the here and now. And now I can talk about Paul because he was addressing a church facing similar challenges. And so when he wrote to, uh, the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16, just reading a few verses there. He's encouraging the believers in Corinth, saying, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Well, what are we seeing? What are we fixing our eyes on? And we can see the temporary things, if you like, around us, and that can almost govern our perspective. That's, that's what we see. We see a church or a life that seems to be outwardly wasting away. It's just decay, things deteriorating, things not going well, things not going to, to plan. The church experiencing trouble. And so Paul writing there, but also John in Revelation is saying to a church in that situation, or churches, you, you need a different, you need a new, a renewed perspective. You need a heavenly perspective. The road ahead will continue to have the odd bump in it, the odd twist in it, the odd turn. But God says, I want you to see further up the road. I want you to see what's at the end of the road. I want you to see where this road with all its twists and turns and bumps is actually heading. You're familiar with the church in trouble. You're familiar with the church on the earth. You're familiar with church with questions and issues and uncertainties and not being able to see clearly all the way into the future. You're familiar with that. I want you to see something else. I want you to see something more. And so what we get in Revelation 21 is, is what a, a term, a, a guided tour of glory. We, we, we get a vision, another glorious vision of glory. And so we're going this morning to accompany John. With the angel, with the gold measuring rod, we're going to accompany them on their, on this guided tour that John gets. If you've been on a guided tour before, if you've been on holiday somewhere, uh, there's, there's someone, and they're probably holding up a brolly, aren't they? And there's a, there's a group of people, or they're, they're holding up some papers. They're holding up something in their hand so that you can see them and so that you can follow them around. And, you know, if it, wherever they might be, whether it's kind of a guided tour of a city, or a guided tour of some other attraction, some manor house or something, um, you can bet, in a sense, there's probably almost an infinite amount of things that you could find out about, details that you could be told about, 
but as it were, the guided tour, as it were, leads you through and homes in on certain things. And they'll tell you stories or they'll bring your attention to something in particular and the story that goes behind it or, or what it signifies, why you should bother giving your attention to that particular part of the building or that particular part of the city. And it's kind of the same here. We get a guided tour of glory and an infinite amount of things could be said but the angel with John homes in on certain things and we're going to look at what some of those things are and so firstly we see that the focus here is on the holy city the new Jerusalem Verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So what we're seeing then is there is a completely new or renewed universe. That's huge. That's massive. a new earth. Opinions kind of vary. We don't know exactly. Some would say that the, 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 the current earth and the current heaven are completely annihilated and replaced with a completely new one. Um, others would say that there's going to be almost a complete renewal of the earth. So it will bear some resemblance, but it will be completely completely glorified in the same way that when we're in glory... Um, I will no longer have this particular body. I'll have a resurrection body. Um, But we might be able to recognize each other. So it might be that I kind of retain somehow in glory with no sin or decay, with no physical problems, retain some of the features so that I can be um, recognized, so that we, we recognize one another. It might be like that with the entire planet and the entire universe. Who knows? Let's wait and see. There we see this new heavens and the new earth, this whole new universe to explore. But what's the angel keen to highlight? We could explore the entire universe with this angel. What does he draw our attention to? A city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And we see in verse 2, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So what's the angel keen to highlight? God's people, God's church, the church no longer in trouble, this is the church in glory. And so we might be familiar with the church in trouble and see that clearly, but we're now needing to fix our eyes, as it were, on what is, to us at least, at the moment, unseen. The angel revealed it to John. John John is telling us what he saw, and, and now we get to kind of participate in this this guided tour this is what the angel wants us to see and again because it's revelation using dramatic language it kind of appears slightly bizarre because one moment it looks like a city the next moment we're being told the city's dressed as a bride prepared to a prepared for her, her husband i don't i'm not quite sure i can picture that a city descending from heaven this is not something that man has built that's coming up from the earth this is something that god has prepared and is coming down from heaven it looks like a city and in some way it's beautifully dressed like a bride it, the, the the city the city bride it's a we we get further descriptions of it uh where the angel says in verse nine you know come i will show you the bride the wife 
of the Lamb. Well, that's fascinating because the church has been referred to as the bride before. And uh, see, in Ephesians 5, for example, husbands are told, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, to, to cleanse her and to present her to himself as a pure spotless bride. So the church is sometimes described as a bride preparing for a wedding day. Here, the church is, is so, look, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Implication, God and his people have now, at this point, become holy and perfectly united. The, the wedding supper of the Lamb that we looked at early in Revelation has now taken place. There's no more waiting, in other words. There's no more, uh, there's no more delay. This is the church in glory, and it's, it's glorious. So the focus is on the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the church, God's people. What else do we see as we take a tour around this city. Well, the angel directs our attention to a number of things. Uh, in particular, the foundations of the city. Okay, that seems a little bit strange. Rachel and I moved house this week, uh, which was great, which is also very hot, um, given the temperature and the weather. Uh, and some people have come around to visit, um, popped in. And for some of them, we've just given a brief kind of guided tour of our new house. And um, no one has yet come and gone, wow, look at those foundations. They are beautiful. They're exquisite. Well, to be fair, you can't actually see the foundations of our house, whereas in some way you can see the foundations here. And also, to be fair, we've not said Look at the foundations. Look at the thickness of the wall. It would seem like a slightly odd thing to draw attention to. So the angel's drawing attention here to come and have a look at the, the foundations of this city. These 12 foundations with the, with the names of the 12 apostles on them. And later on we get to see that they're, they're kind of glorious and they're kind of, uh, sparkling with precious jewels. Well, what's going on here? This seems seems strange. We wouldn't normally give our attention to foundations. Well, they would be very important in the ancient world. One of those churches that we mentioned, the church in Philadelphia, in AD 70, 17, uh, people in that city experienced an earthquake. And so they moved out of the city. And with the help of Rome, that city was rebuilt. The walls went back up, the foundations repaired, the city restored. And yet, historians tell us that a lot of people after that didn't feel confident to go and live in the city. Um, they'd seen what happened before, and so actually a lot of people stayed outside. They, they lived in the countryside surrounding the city. They didn't quite trust that what had been built would last, that what had been built would stand the test of time. And here our attention is drawn to the foundations, at the very least to say, what has been built here, what has been prepared here, will utterly stand the test of time. There will be utter security, peace and rest 
for God's people. Because what God has built cannot be shaken. What God has built will never be undermined. Well, what has God built then? What's, what's going on here? Well, we're being told that everyone, saints in the old covenant, like Abraham and Sarah, that we've been hearing about recently, as well as the saints under the new covenant, like the apostles and all that have come since then, to have faith in Christ, will find their security right here. It will be unshakable, indestructible, forever standing the test of time. We're all looking for security one way or another, aren't we? We might not kind of look at a city and think primarily, right, I need to make sure the foundations are are, are great to this city. Uh, It might not enter our minds, but we'll probably be thinking in terms of, is, is this a safe place to be? Is this a secure place to be? And we might think kind of financially as well. Um, uh, will we be secure? Will our finances be secure? And obviously that's one thing uh, in the world at the moment that is getting shaken. A foundation that life is built on uh, in this old order where the cracks have appeared. And even more than that, things have been crumbling. What people have put their faith in, what people have put their trust in, is then has then been seen to give away. But here we see what God is building, what God is preparing, something that will not be, uh, there will never be any cracks appearing. This is what Abraham was looking forward to. Again, he, he lived a fairly nomadic life. And we see in Hebrews 12, and I think Mark was referring to this last week, his attitude, we're told in Hebrews 11 and verse 10, that he was looking for the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was looking for the city with foundations. It's an intriguing reference. Whose architect and builder is God. This is what he was looking for. He was looking ahead to this city with foundations, with rock-solid foundations. But this wasn't just for him. It wasn't just for the, the people of God under the old covenants, like Abraham, all those who believed in God's way of salvation, who would, um, were believing that uh, he would provide a way, provide a lamb, provide some means in which we could uh, come to know God and be in right relationship uh, with him. We're told in Ephesians as well, in chapter 2. Paul is writing there to believers who don't necessarily share Jewish backgrounds. Um, and he's saying to them, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So he's saying, look, you're, you're included too. All God's people included. All God's people included in this building that is rising, or this temple, or this, this city that is growing, um, with a foundation and with Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone. That's why it never gives away. That's why there are no cracks. That's why it will never crumble. That's why it will never fail. Because this foundation has at the, at the cornerstone, as we were just singing, has Christ, and it's on him that our hope rests. 
And so this whole city is standing firm, built on what Jesus has done, what the apostles went on to explain for us, his wonderful work, our salvation, uh, his love that nothing can separate us from, that nothing can undermine. So it's beautifully decorated. It's worthy of our attention. So we see the city. We see it's a city with foundations. And this guided tour as well, we're told about the size of the city. Again, which sounds a bit bizarre. You might not be, uh, you'll be forgiven for not knowing uh, ancient measurements and what they signified. But we're told that as the angel went round and measured the city with the rod, he found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. Anybody got any clue how long 12,000 stadia would be roughly equivalent to in our measurements? No, that's okay, that's fine. Uh, let me tell you, because I had to look it up too, um, that roughly equates to one and a half thousand miles. Or in other words, this city is as wide as the distance between London and Athens, or New York and Houston in Texas, or Delhi in India, all the way to Rangoon in Myanmar, or Burma as we might know it. Now we're not being told that so that we kind of think, okay, I understand now. God's people in glory will be literally that wide. In fact, what we're being told here is that it's not as if God's people will live in a city. In some way, we're being told that God's people are a city, which again is slightly mind-bending to get our heads around. We're being told that God's people, the church, the new Jerusalem, the holy city is really, really big. It's completely big. And we need to know that because sometimes when the church is feeling small, when the church is feeling persecuted, when the church is kind of going through uh, tough times and is feeling vulnerable in the society in which it happens to live, a, an expectation can develop that, of course, Jesus is going to return, but he's going to return for a faithful few, for a, for a tiny group of people who've stayed true. And we understand, therefore, that it's going to be terribly unusual for anyone to come to faith in Jesus because the church is small and the church is vulnerable and life as a Christian is not always easy. Who would, who would choose some of the hardships that they're experiencing back then? No, this is, this is a, this is not necessarily a straightforward thing. So an expectation can set in when the church is in trouble. That things are going to be small. That not many people will be saved. And so sometimes as a church we can act like we believe that to be true. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus is returning for a big bride. And big is beautiful. She's no shrinking violet. She is big. This city is Huge. There is room in God's plans. There's room in God's people for everyone, for anyone who will come, for all who will uh, believe in Jesus 
and receive the right to be his child, they're included in this. Whether they happen to live thousands of years ago, uh, contemporaries of Abraham or whatever, or living right now, the invitation still lies open. There's no limitation here. This is not just for the faithful few. This is not just for a small hardcore of religious people. God's invitation spreads, spreads widely. Come and be part of my plans for eternity. Come and, come and experience my forgiveness. Come and experience something of what Kirsten was hinting at earlier on, that God can take something and then like that lily in the pond, just transform it, create something that's, that's, that's different, that's kind of beautiful, um, out of a situation that might have looked so unpromising to start with. Well, God can do that with, a, with, with an individual. God can do that with you. God has done that with me. Kind of, he can pick people up from wherever they are and say, come, be part of what I've got in store. Come and be part of my people. Come and be part of this beautiful bride. Come and let me transform areas of your life that you thought would just always remain kind of an area of barren, kind of ruinedness. Uh, God says, no, come and, come and be part. There's, there's room for all. Jesus is returning for a big bride. Let's have confidence in the gospel that we believe. If you're following Jesus, it's not unusual for a conversation to happen with a neighbor or a family member or a colleague or someone you just happen to meet and for kind of light to dawn for them and for them to want to ask you more questions. That's not unusual. Sometimes we can act so defensive, so kind of, so apologetic. We're ready for people to say, that's rubbish. We're ready for people to kind of kick it into touch. We're ready for people to ridicule. And sometimes that might happen. But we also want to be ready for when people say, I want to find out more. How can I find out more about this faith that you've just kind of demonstrated to me or, or, or told me about? Let's say our prayers and our lives can be flavoured with that expectation. God is coming back for a big, a big church. A lot of people are going to be in glory if the city is 1,500 miles. It's massive. And that's just the city. It's absolutely huge. I think what it also means is there's plenty of room. It's not like we're going to just get irritated with one another and never be able to find any space. Uh, there's, there's peace. There's security. This is big. There's just there's room to breathe. We're not kind of all kind of hemmed in. Some cities might have that feel. Totally claustrophobic. Everyone jumps on a tube, goes to work, goes up in a lift, sits in an office, goes back home in the tube, goes to their flat, which is kind of like this. And, and that's what we can expect in life. Goes outside and we're kind of coughing and spluttering as all the taxis go by or whatever. I think, oh, well, that doesn't sound such a great part of city life. I think, well, well, no. And in glory, obviously, it won't be that. So we've seen that the focus is on the city. The foundations of the city come in for a lot of attention. The size of the city comes in from a, for some attention as well. And fourthly, we see the shape of the city. Huh? We see its shape. What's its shape? Well, it's, it's set out as a square. So it's as wide as it is long. But then... In a few verses later, we're also told that it's as high as it is wide as it is long, which means that the city is a perfect cube. Need I say more? Hallelujah. 
In glory, we're going to be completely square. No, in glory, we're going to be a cube. The city is a cube and it's dressed as a bride coming down from glory. Don't you get it? <laughs> what? How do we understand here? What's the point here? Okay, well, let me ask you a question. Is there anything else we see in the Bible that is shaped as a cube? Ah, thinking hats. What was a cube? Well, Solomon built a temple. And in the design of that temple, the most holy place was a cube. Don't take my word for it. We can find out in 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 20. What what are the dimensions of the, not the whole temple, but the most holy place in the temple? We find in, in 1 Kings 6 and verse Well, let's read from verse 19. He prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold, and he also overlaid the altar of cedar. Okay, 20 cubits, what's that? It's about nine meters. As we were worshipping earlier on, I was kind of thinking, "That's, that's interesting. So nine meters by nine meters by nine meters. just struck me that possibly, talking just in terms of its size, the holy of holies of the temple would fit in here. Isn't that weird? Because I think you could definitely get nine meters that way. I think you could definitely get nine meters that way. And possibly at its highest, you could get nine meters that way. So we're meeting in a room today which is bigger than the most holy place of the temple. Now, what do we know about the most holy place of the temple under the Old Covenant? Okay, we know that the Ark of the Covenant was there. uh, And uh, and it was the most holy place where God's presence was. That's the key thing. Who could go into the temple? Just one person. The high priest. And when could they go into it? Just once a year. On the Day of Atonement. And so they would be dressed in kind of fine dignified garments. They actually had a a kind of breast piece which had 12 stones on it, 12 precious stones, many of them similar to the ones we read in this passage. So one person, one day a year, gets to go in to the special area within the temple, and the temple is the special area of the city of Jerusalem, and the, the city of Jerusalem is a special area, if you like, of the whole nation of Israel. And under the old covenant, the, the, Israel was the kind of special area for God's people in the whole world. But it boils down to nine meters by nine meters by nine meters, where only one person gets to go one day of the year. That's the presence of God. That's where the presence of God is. And so what's God saying through this letter here? When he says the city is one and a half thousand miles by one and a half thousand miles by one and a half thousand miles in a cube. He's saying the whole of God's people experience unrestricted access into the very presence of God. It's not a special person or one tiny special group of people and they get to kind of wear the special clothes, and they get to go into the presence of God. You'll see there, there's no temple in the city because God's presence is the entire city. Everybody who is in God's city, God's bride, unrestricted access to the presence of God. 
That's so important for us to grasp about what glory is like. It's also important for us to understand right here. Because sometimes we can come into a building like this and think, well, where's the action? The action is kind of around here. And the action is down here. And sometimes when there's loads going on, it's like you come down here, come to the front, which you know sometimes we do and for good reason, come to the front and in crazy moments when God's spirit's moving in powerful ways, come to the front and then you experience the presence of God. And, and then other people are stood around thinking, well, that, okay, do you feel the presence of God right now? Oh, I'm feeling it, I'm feeling it, I'm feeling it. Yes, yeah, me, whoa! And it's all a bit crazy, which is fine. That can happen sometimes. But someone can be sat over there, or over there, or up there and thinking, do you feel the presence of God? And you kind of think, no. No, I don't. And, and then, because of the way we're wired, perhaps we can kind of ask ourselves the question, well, are they more special than me? Are they experiencing more? Is God more real for them than he is for me? And uh, we could kind of wrestle for that and then think, oh, well, I, I don't feel anything. And uh, I don't happen to be at the front. And so, I'll just observe the journey. I'll observe the ride. And so we've got, you know, we can have those expectations. Again, in some respects, the Jubilee Centre here presents us with some challenges because there's a front row and there's very definitely a back row. And uh, now God's presence is with us. So when we worship God, it doesn't actually matter where you're sat in terms of God being prepared and ready to draw near to you as soon as, uh, as, soon as we draw near to him. God can speak to you wherever you're sat. But we just need to guard ourselves from that kind of expectation there are special places, and in God's people, there are kind of special people. Now, when we see, what's the church like in glory? Church in glory, mysteriously, is this cube. But that's because the presence of God is absolutely everywhere. No one in glory will be thinking, I have a duff seat. No one in glory will be feeling, I'm a bit out of it. This isn't really where the action is. All God's people in glory will be eternally bowled over and amazed with the nearness of God, with the closeness of God, with intimacy with God. There's no front row, there's no back row, there's no special class and less important group. It's everyone. Now that's one thing for us to bear in mind, like I say, so that what we do and how we do it, as much as we're able... And in our minds, we're thinking it all the time. We are together the people of God. It's not a case of there being those kind of divisions, those kind of distinctions, if you like. No, we together are God's people. And uh, that's what matters. So we see, we see the shape of the city. We see that means God's presence. But isn't God present with us now? How is it going to be different between now and and then, surely, we might perceive it in different ways at different times, but surely God is present with us right now. Where two or three are gathered, Jesus says, there I am in the midst. He gives a great commission and says, lo, I am with you to the very end of the age. Well, God's presence is here. We know God's presence. So what's the difference? We're told God's, God's going to be present then, but we know that now, of course. Well, yes, God is present with us now. But here's another way in which Paul describes the, the kind of difference between what life is like now, the church on the earth, the church in trouble, 
and what it will be like then. The church in glory, the church in eternity. So 1 Corinthians and 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12, Paul writes, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. It's quite a humble thing for the Apostle Paul to write, isn't it really? I know in part, I see but a poor reflection. Paul saw a lot, Paul understood a lot, but he was saying, in comparison, what we see now, in the light of what it will be like in glory, will appear just to be like a poor reflection as in a mirror. Or maybe in today's terms, if you want to kind of Skype someone, use Skype to have a conversation over the internet. And so you are, as it were, face-to-face with that person, kind of via a screen. And then depending on what your download speed is like or kind of how strong the signal is in the house, um, sometimes the picture just gets really pixelated. And it's like, yeah, I think that's still the person I'm talking to, but they've just, momentarily, they've frozen. I know they're still there. I know they're still real. But what I'm seeing or what I know is kind of slightly limited. It's not quite as good as being face-to-face. I get to communicate. We get to talk together. But it's not like really being in the same room. And so there's something of that idea. We, we know something, of course we do, of the nearness of God right now. But oh, how much more will we know it in glory? And what I love about this passage is how it describes the presence of God. How it describes... We're told in verse 3, this loud voice from the throne saying... Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. This emphasis on God is with them. God is with us. This closeness. And we see the presence of God also in the things that are not present. There are seven things. Seven things that aren't present. That we're told in this passage, they're not there. Let me tell you what those things are. Ah, we're told there's no sea. We'll come back to that in a minute. There's no death. There's no mourning. There's no weeping. There's no pain. There's no curse. And there is no night. All of those things are not there. They could not possibly be there in the perfect, unrestricted presence of God. They don't belong. They don't exist. No sea, no death, no mourning, no weeping, no pain, no curse, no night. No sea can sound bizarre. No sea, because often sea was seen figuratively at least to be the the origin of all chaos, the origin of evil. And so when we met the beast, where did the beast come from? He came out of the sea in the vision that we saw uh, earlier in chapter 13. So there may be some bodies of water in glory Um, But the point is being made, there's no evil. There's no chaos. Everything is in right and good and proper order. uh, God was also saying, him who sits on the throne says, I'm making everything new. Well, of course, therefore, there can be no death. There can be no decay. There can be no deterioration. Everything has the quality of being brand new. Everything has the quality of being absolutely perfect 
Never, nothing will ever break. Nothing will ever deteriorate. Nothing will decay. There's no curse. So the ground just brings out fruit all the time. There's no difficulty in stuff growing. And so we hear about the tree of life always bearing fruit every season. What tree does that? One in glory. There's no curse also means there's no hostility between people. There's no difficulty in relationships uh, between men and women or between any of us. All because of God's complete, wonderful, perfect presence and our total closeness with him. So that, for now at least, is the guided tour of glory. There's a whole lot more that could be said. And who knows what exploring the new heavens and the new earth will be like. But what do we need to see? What do we need to focus our eyes on? When the church is in trouble, when the church has questions, when we live with uncertainty and any number of twists and turns on the road, what do we need to look at? What do we need to fix our gaze on? That which is actually unseen to our own eyes, but is made visible here in the pages of revelation we need to see where the road is leading we need to see what god is preparing we need to see what he is doing so now in a sense we kind of we've done the guided tour we return to earth i don't know what was involved for john in receiving this vision he talks about kind of being caught up in the spirit being taken to a mountain high and then going around the city whatever was involved for him there was that right now returning Where was John? Well, John was actually in a prison cell somewhere on the island of Patmos as he received these visions. Where are we? As we read the pages of Revelation, then we can kind of come back, right? We're back now. We have got questions. We have got things about which we're uncertain. It might be trouble that's being experienced. And there might be disappointments that we have to handle. Prayers that didn't get answered in quite the way we wanted them to be. When future prayers, we can still be determined and persevering. I'm persevering. I'm still going to pray for the lost. I'm still going to pray for healing. I'm still going to pray for this city. I'm still praying for my family. I'm still praying for my street. I'm still praying for this world. But my prayers are just labored with the flavor of disappointments. Tarnished, maybe. Not outright accusing God, but there's still this question in my mind. Has God just become a little bit hard in this? Because there's trouble. Because he hasn't done what we were asking him to do in the way we were asking him to do it. Let's turn to this passage Let's go on that guided tour. Let's read through these last few chapters of Revelation and ask ourselves the question, is God good? Is God good? Yes, He is. Is God faithful? Yes, He is. Is God full of grace? And mercy, yes he is. Will he one day presence himself amongst his people so wonderfully 
that we will experience for ourselves what it says in verse 4 of chapter 21. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. We need to answer the questions. We need to pose the questions with the flavor of heaven. Looking to what is to come. And there are ways in which we experience those glories. We get a foretaste here and now, don't we? One day it will be face to face. One day intimacy with the Spirit in a way that's unmeasured. But actually now we get a foretaste. Then there'll be a banquet. Now we get appetizers in the way that God answers prayer. In the way that God does save in the way that God does heal, in the way that God does intervene, in the, in the way that God is with his people. We know something of it now, and we know that's a down payment of an inheritance that's even more glorious that is to come. So we need to navigate the bumps on the road. We need to navigate the twists and turns in the path, knowing this. Again, that's what Paul was getting at when he wrote to the Corinthians, and he uh, that, that verse, those group of verses that we looked at right at the outset in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16. Paul writes there, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Therefore, we don't accuse God of having done wrong. Therefore, we persevere in faith, praying for and witnessing to people who don't currently know Jesus. Therefore, we expect people to be born again. Therefore, we expect people to experience the the transforming work of God that makes us into new creations. Therefore, we look forward to the day when there'll be no, no more waiting. There'll be no more wait. There'll be no more delay. There'll be no more Oh, how long, oh God, until you do this? How long, oh God, until you intervene in that? No more troubles, no more unanswered prayers, no, no unfulfilled promise, uh, prophecies. Every promise fulfilled. Sorry, that part isn't in 2 Corinthians. Let's go back there. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed Day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. What is seen is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. 